You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Hi, I'm Nathan Jones and I'm the Senior Minister at Oasis Church Waterloo. A few weeks ago, Steve Chalk and I recorded a podcast responding to some questions that we'd been asked during our Sunday Grill sermon series. There were so many questions that we ended up talking for a very long time. So even though we recorded this as one podcast, we thought we'd release it in three parts. So here's part one. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Oasis Church Waterloo podcast. I'm Nathan Jones, I'm one of the ministers at Oasis Waterloo. And I'm Steve Chalk and I'm another minister at Oasis Waterloo. And these podcasts are all based on something we did uh, a few months ago uh, on Sunday mornings as the church met called Grill the Preacher. So what we did was we got the congregation to vote every Sunday morning on what the preacher should speak about but the preacher only had 10 minutes to address that and the way we did that is we put up 10 subjects a widespread spectrum of subjects on a giant screen and then you could use your phones to vote for the subject you wanted and then that preacher that day had to address that theme for 10 minutes then was a klaxon at the end and then had to take questions from the congregation, which was brilliant because it, I, I mean, it's scary. Some people found it, but it goes to how well you understand your faith and how it works. And I thought the brilliant thing, I don't know what you thought, Nathan, I thought the brilliant thing for anybody in the congregation is they realise this isn't a show. You've not put this together. This isn't something you know smart that you've prepared so you avoid all the trickiness. It's whatever you said you could be grilled about. I thought it was brilliant. And so we had 10 questions. Uh, three of them were voted on. But the problem was, Steve, wasn't it, that we had far too many questions for our 10-minute countdown. And even though we um, were a little bit liberal with our 10 minutes and took about 12 to 15 to try and answer them, there were still a load of questions left over. So what we decided to do was to put this podcast together, slightly different to what we normally produce on a Monday every week, uh, with all of the questions. So I have got a ton of paper in front of me from the three questions that we did ask, uh, which were, why don't we see miracles anymore? Steve spoke about that one. And then the next week I did, why are we LGBT plus inclusive when other churches aren't? And then on the final week, Dave Parr, who's the chief executive of Oasis and part of our leadership team, uh, looked at, is Satan real? So what yeah, we so, that, so that's the thing. We did it for three Sunday mornings running, answered the question we were asked, and then gave people the chance to write all these questions, and there are hundreds of them on uh, pieces of paper. So we never we never answered this stuff. So let's get going then with the first of those three weeks, which was why don't we see miracles anymore? Uh, honestly, because you can't see this, it's worth me saying. That's like a it's like a deck of cards you've got. <laughs> True. So we might not even on this podcast get to all of these questions as well, but we'll give them a good go. So the first one then, what's the difference between a miracle and a sophisticated conjuring trick? A sophisticated conjuring trick or an unsophisticated conjuring trick is is a trick. It's just that. It's a deception. It's And I know some unsophisticated conjuring tricks because I've used them in uh, uh, primary school assemblies, etc., etc. So you go to a trick shop, you buy the trick, you know how it works, no one else does, and it's all about deception, isn't it? That's it. Um, a miracle 
is something where people would define it differently, but it's something, there's no trick. There's no, there's, there's no one pulling the strings. There's no one who knows how this is going to work. When, um, uh, uh, when my son, one of my sons, I've got two sons, one, one of them, Daniel, was just a few months old, uh, Cornelia, my wife, and I took him to the doctor because he had this terrible cough, and it ended up with him going to the local hospital and having x-rays, and the x-rays had this big shadow on his lungs. And uh, they said this was unusual. They'd not seen anything like this. But they said, look, you can see this shadow. And we saw the shadow. And they said, you've got to take him to Great Ormond Street Hospital. And uh, he's got to stay there. So he went into Great Ormond Street for a week. And I remember sitting in Great Ormond Street and the consultant saying to us both, young parents, this doesn't look good. You must prepare. That, that was the exact phrase. You must prepare yourselves for the worst. They've got to be honest mm -hmm. with you. And we prayed and we prayed just like anybody who loves anybody would. And I can't remember how long Daniel was there. Perhaps it was a week and a half, two weeks. But eventually we sat in a room waiting to hear the worst news again with the same consultant. He said, the shadow's gone. It's completely disappeared. Now, whether there was a natural healing process that went on um, or, whether, or whether this was supernatural, who knows, but there was no... It wasn't a trick. It wasn't a deception. But that's so that leads us on to probably the question that gets asked most, I think, when we look at this topic. And it's been it's written down probably four or five times in front of me in different formats. What happens if the miracle that you hoped for and you prayed for doesn't happen? Is God picking and choosing who receives miracles? Or somebody else has asked, does that mean that God hasn't listened? Hmm. That's well, a really tricky one. It's a really tricky one. I don't know what you think about it, Nate. All I know is that probably most of the prayers I've prayed in my life haven't been answered. You know, so I told you about that miraculous event with my son because you were asking about miracles, but I've prayed endless prayers. I mean, and I don't just mean a prayer that you might toss into the wind. I mean, a longing and an aching for something to happen for somebody or for a community, a group of people, for a famine to end, for people to, to not die in a disaster, etc., etc. And those prayers haven't been answered. It's, it is it is a mystery, but there's no simple magic trick, again, mechanism. It's not, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen, abracadabra. It doesn't work like that. I think prayer is about a dependency on God and an acceptance. Faith is, in the end, hanging on when you don't know. It's not, it, that's why it's called faith, isn't it, rather than a, a set of facts that you can prove. I don't know why this works up, why some miracles and prayers are answered and some aren't. Yeah, that's that would be my immediate response as well, would be, I don't know. Because similarly, I've had family members who I've prayed for for a long time and and the response hasn't been what I've, what I've wanted. I, I guess that for me, that's been the difference, I guess, in my theology over the last 20 years or so, is that I'm, I'm now more comfortable in saying, I don't know. And I think that being able to live with some of that mystery and not always having an easy, immediate response to questions like that, actually, it's difficult at first, isn't it? But if you can, 
if you can learn to appreciate that mystery and to live in that grey area that isn't always black and white, it's tough to do. Yeah, I remember standing in a shack in India. It was the first time I'd ever been to India, actually. So it was years and years ago. Now Oasis works in India. I'm half Indian, which is probably why I went. I was asked to go and do some uh, some lectures on youth work, you know, back before the turn of the millennium, long time before the turn of the millennium. And I remember in a in a slum in the city of Mumbai, Bombay, as it was then, just standing there, and I watched a mother holding a child in this shack while uh, a child, I mean a baby of six, seven months, and I watched as the child died in her arms. And the child was dying of dehydration because what happens in the slums is the water's all dirty and so it's boiling, it's very hot, of course, and the mother gives the child water, not knowing that you've got to boil it, etc., etc. And so this child was dying of dehydration when actually back then, what would have cost 5p was a little solution of, of salt and uh, that you would put into the, uh, into the water that would have purified it and would have helped. But there was no sachet there. And this child died. And I remember knowing the child was dying and that child's breathing was getting more and more shallow. And I could see the pain wrung on the mother's face. And I prayed like, I mean, like, mm. who wants to worship a God who won't step in and save this child? Who wants to do that? Well, you know, if I was God, I'd rescue this child, but the child died. So I'm then left with, do I abandon my faith or do I accept there's mystery in it? Because if I abandon my faith, I'm saying, I, I don't know about you, I'm faced with a different set of huge problems that I can't answer. Yeah. That isn't, it's slightly off the topic of miracles. The follow-up question is obvious, I guess, isn't it? So if, so if God doesn't intervene in that story, why doesn't God intervene in that story? And is that because God is choosing to let that happen? Or is there something else at play here? I think that the mystery uh, we have some clues to, and the mystery is that God doesn't control the universe and my life. I could be rude to you. I could walk out of here. I could, you know, I I, I had freedom. Mm -hmm. And because I had freedom, uh, I can do things that inadvertently or purposely pour trauma and trouble into somebody else's life. On a global scale, the way we choose to organise our world is what means that some people have clean water and some people don't have clean water. Some people have access to medicines and some people don't have access to medicines. The medicines are there. The harvest is there. Some people have access to food and some people don't have access to food. So, so without trying to be oversimplistic about it, because I know it's even more complicated than that, and I'm not trying, what about a tsunami? What about an earthquake that wipes endless people out in Turkey? Um, but I do know that the great deal of things that go wrong in our lives or in the lives of others are caused by the freedom of other people. It comes to mind as I say it, um, I was talking to somebody I've got to know just in the last few weeks and and he told me two days ago 
that we were standing on Kennington Road and he told me that his brother, his slightly younger brother, this guy's in his 50s now, was run over by a bus and killed at the age of 12 and that his mother had never recovered from that anguish. Why did that crash happen? Mm. Who was to blame? All of those questions. One of the examples that I like around this difficult question is that if God is love, then loving relationships are never controlling. The application often given is is relationships between a man and wife that that isn't a good relationship. If it's, you know, we talk about coercive control and domestic violence, those types of things, and that it, that is not a loving relationship. And no. so to turn that on its head, if God is love, then the relationship between God and humanity can never be controlling because a controlling relationship is not a loving relationship. It means that we have no freedom. In the end, we're just robots. I'm an autonomous. And um, if I say, Nathan, that was a great talk you did last Sunday, it's worthless because you know that I'm programmed to say that. Mm. And however good or bad or lousy it was, <laughs> I'd still say, Nathan, that was a great call <laughs> because so so the our freedom is what makes the gift valuable. Mm. Our freedom is what makes the generosity generosity. Mm. Without that, we're not alive, are we? At all. Mm. There is no joy. There's no joy in anything. But when I have freedom, I sometimes abuse that freedom. And sometimes the things I do have consequences for others. <laughs> it's a funny example at one level and a terrible example. When I was um, 21, I was praying for a car because I didn't have a car. I was praying and praying and praying for this car. And um, somebody I worked with took me down the breaker's yard and they bought me a car on the breaker's yard because you could do that then. Mm. And they bought it, I remember, for £25. Now, it was, <laughs> it was, it was a, the back end of the 1970s. It was a Triumph Herald. You know, they're classic cars. Yeah. But this one, classically, was full of holes. I mean, it was like a, a terrible, you know. It was an awful, you know, you had to... I, I, I remember, that's, um, it's when I first went out with Cornelia, and, and when she used to ride in the passenger seat, I, I used to have this wire that was round the door handle on her side and then the other end was attached around the gear stick because if you didn't have it there, whenever you turned, whenever you turned right, the door on her side would fly open, <laughs> you know. So it's a death trap. Right? Yeah. It's a death trap. We yeah. survived it. But it used to burn as much oil as it did petrol. <laughs> but I used to say, God gave me this car. Mm. It was wonderful. Now, if I said God gave me a petrol-guzzling, gas, uh, 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 oil-polluting car like that, mm. in what sense did God give me that? Mm, mm. It's, it's, it's complicated, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it is. Yeah. God gave us victory over our enemies. Mm, mm. Did he? God blessed us as we went into the war in the Falklands. yeah. The bishop blesses the battleship. Yeah, I think I mentioned this in one of the talks I gave recently. We're now 20 years since the beginning of the Iraq war. And at that point, you know, the UK and the US lead us into war. And the 
prime minister and president at that point were Tony Blair, who's a self-professing Christian, and George W. Bush, who's not only a self-professing Christian, but gave an interview saying that God, he prayed about it, and he was clear that God had told him to take the US into war in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Can that be the case? So life and spirituality and hearing God is not half as simplistic mm. as we make it out to be. It, it, is, a, it is a mystery. Mm. And I think the other thing, it, it, you know, in all of this, pulling this back to miracles, is we all die. We all grow old and we all die. Mm. I have watched friends of mine die whilst Christians have prayed feverishly for them not to die. And I've been told from time to time, I don't have faith when I've suggested that actually this person might uh, be dying. Mm. But I realise that if I really have faith in the God of love and death is built into our universe, if I've really got faith, then why am I so scared of letting go, so scared of death? I've got a friend who's dying at the moment in hospital, uh, whom I've known for, for 40 years, and he wrote a letter to his friends um, and I've got it on my desk at home at the moment. And he just says, um, I have very serious cancer. I'm in hospital. And he's a well-known Christian leader. And he said, please don't pray for my healing. <laughs> don't pray for my healing. I'm ready to die. I have faith. Mm-hmm. Now that is a letter worth getting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um Bring it back to some of these. Some oh, wandered these. Off. Yeah, we have wandered off, which is always going to be the problem, wasn't it? But, um, there's a few questions around miracles and Jesus and the New Testament. There did seem to be a lot of miracles in the New Testament, somebody writes. Um, when did they diminish and why? And a similar one, I guess. Um, can most or some of Jesus's physical healing miracles be explained now by medical science or psychology? Well, I don't know what you'd say going to that. I'm, I'm reminded of a famous story that's often told about St Cuthbert of Lindisfarne. And, and to my memory, Cuthbert was around in the 7th century. And I think if you look, look it up, Wikipedia it, um, you'll probably find out I'm entirely wrong about that. But I think it was 7th century. Anyway, the great story about Cuthbert on Linda's farm is that one night he looked up into the sky and he saw, this is before he was St. Cuthbert, and he saw this burning light in the sky and he fell to his knees. I can't remember the details of the story, but he saw this burning light in the sky, this bright light, and he says, I saw an angel in the dark sky or angels, a host of angels, and I gave my life to God then. In actual fact, this story is written many, many times. And somebody said to me not so long ago, well, if he was looking north from Lindisfarne, could it just be the northern lights that he saw? (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't realise back then that's... And so sometimes there is something natural behind 
a miracle, isn't there? Yeah. And and yet the miracle, the miracle is still a miracle because because it's a moment of transcendence and awakening, and somebody encounters God in it. I think there's mm. this 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 isn't about Jesus, but it's about Paul. Um, so Paul is on the Damascus Road. He's heading off to persecute the followers of Jesus. And then he hears this this incredible noise and he falls on the, on the floor and he hears the voice of Jesus saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, the story is told three times in the New Testament, actually, uh, three times. And, and it's only ever Paul, Saul, Paul, who hears the voice. Other people hear a noise, but he's the only one who hears the voice. And there's been so much conversation and research about this over the years and it's but here is this young man who's about six years younger than Jesus and he's off to wipe out these followers he's murderous I mean how tense is he psychologically how whipped up how stressed how anxious is he because he's trying to save Judaism he's a young man who's consumed by by anger and and then he has this Huge experience. So was it really a voice shouting down, you know, with a megaphone, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Or was this a psychological experience? Mm. We read it as in those days God used to shout for a megaphone from the sky. But when you read it again, you see, well, the people around him just heard a noise. Was it falling rocks? Was it rock fall? What was going on? Mm. Was it an earth tremor? Yeah, but it's recorded as a miracle. Yeah, and I guess it's you can easily get hung up on that bit, the kind of magic bit. Whereas the important thing probably is the impact that it had yeah. on Paul, isn't it? And then what he went on to do. I think the other same, same as Cuthbert, you see. Yeah, totally. It, Paul's life was totally transformed by that psychological encounter. Mm-hmm. I think the other angle on that though isn't it, is that we can often over spiritualize. Um, Something. So I'm thinking of a, a conversation that I had with a guy who's a, another church minister, and um, uh, and I got to know him a, a few years ago. And um, and his theology would be quite different to my theology. But he was um, he was living in one place in one side of London, and his church was the other side of London. Um, and it was taking him like an hour, hour and a half to commute to this church, and you know, evening meetings and Sundays and all this, and it's you know, it's difficult. Um, and sometimes, you know, there'd be a crash on the North Circular, and it'd take him two or three hours to get to and from this church. Um, and when I spoke to him, I said, "Oh, how's it going?" Because the last time it was, you know, it'd been hard work for him. And um, he said, "Oh, yeah." He said, um, "Oh, real answer to prayer." And I said, "Oh, what's that?" He said, "Well." Um, been really praying about whether it was my time to move on um and i really believe that god was saying to me that it was my time to move on from this church and uh so i was trying to you know work out where i should go next and i was praying about it you know and and then I, I really felt like god was telling me to to move to this church which i won't name and it's the closest church to his house and now it's a five minute walk away from his house to the church service and and, and i'm just thinking what a coincidence. Isn't it unbelievable that of all the churches that God could have called you to in the whole world, you know, God has quite clearly put on your heart the name of this church that's yeah. five minutes away. And, <laughs> and I can't I can't get my head around why he can't just say yeah. I was really struggling with that commute. It was a nightmare. I often yeah. wasn't getting home before my kids have gone to bed. You know, 
it was a real pain for me. I was feeling really tired on a Sunday morning or whatever. Why can't you just say I was struggling with all of those things? And now my life is so much better that I live five minutes away. My mental health is better because I walk five minutes instead of driving two hours or, or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. Why do we have to kind of over-spiritualise those types yeah. of things? Well, two stories, equal and opposite, so, so that come to mind as you're telling that story. So I've, I'm, I've got a good friend and, uh, again, known her for donkey's years, and we used to work, we used to serve on the same board of the same Christian organization for some years. And that this meant that we had to, we had to meet down in Sussex, about 10 of us on this group, um, once a month for a couple of days. And so, and, um, she lived further north than me. So I'd often get the train out to Gatwick Airport, uh, station. And then she'd pick me up and then we'd drive down to the town where we used to meet. And the town where we used to meet didn't have a lot of places to park. And so she would um, drive into the multi-storey car park there, um, which was always kind of foolish. And she'd say, Lord, Lord, give us a parking space, give us a parking space. And she'd laugh at me because she f- said I was cynical and, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I should have faith. Every time we drove round and round and round and round and finally got a parking space, she would say to me, there you go, Steve. You, you, I told you, you're too cynical. Trust, have faith, you know. Mm. And God would get the credit because we got a parking space. Every time we drove round and we didn't get a parking space, which is about 50% of the time, 50% of the time we did get parking space, it has mm. to be said, and then we had to drive out again and go and find some uh, lane somewhere and walk, but a long way in. God never got the, <laughs> never got told off. You know, it wasn't like, oh, God's let us down. Mm. In fact, I think her attitude was, it was my lack of faith that meant that God didn't get us. And get us. So there you go. But when, but so there you go. That's how we can oversimplify things. Mm. Mm. But um, years ago, when our kids were young, we went on holiday to um, Cyprus. And in Cyprus, we, we stayed in a village and where we, where we stayed in this house and the owner of the house let us have a four by four vehicle because you could go off track up into the mountains in it. So, uh, so I went with our four kids up into the mountains and they were children. And Cornelia wouldn't come because she didn't want to drive up these, you know, windy roads into the mountains, but they were all up for it. And we drove up to the Trudos Mountains and, um, and Mount Olympus, I think it is. I might be wrong about that, but I think it's the highest one. And we drive it, drive, but it's not like snow peaks. It's, you know, it's, it doesn't really get above the tree line, you know, but, but these are big drops as the road winds itself round the mountain. And it's all dust and we're in this four by four vehicle and we get way up into the mountain and we're going round a hairpin bend and one of the tyres blew. My kids tell you about this. You know, yeah. one of, and all four of them get out and the car is right near the edge of this. I mean, it must have been 300 foot drop down. <laughs> and um, and. Like, what are we going to do? So I've got four kids who are upset, and then I find the jack, and, you know, on those Land Rover vehicles, the wheels on the back door. Mm. So I begin undoing this. But then I've got to jack this car up mm. on on rubble, yeah, you know, yeah. and get this thing on. And I'm just honestly wondering how I'm going to do this. And I think 
call me this going to kill me. <laughs> four kids up a mountain and we are miles from anywhere and I'm not going to get them down the mountain and if the car goes over the edge, you know, it's not mm. even mine. You know, like, and at that moment, this guy wandered around the corner. Mm. It was extraordinary. And he said, what's wrong? I said this. And he said, I'll help. And the two of us meant that we could do this all together and the wheel was put back on and the kids get got in and the girls stopped crying and there was all that kind of stuff. And then he said, goodbye, and he wandered off. And to this day, I have no idea why anyone, there was nothing there. Yeah. It was just, there wasn't a hut, there mm. was nothing anywhere. Mm. Mm. So was that a miraculous supernatural intervention was that an angel and of course the term angel simply means the messenger of good news mm. how did that happen yeah because i think it's important to say is it like i i absolutely believe in a god who speaks to us mm. i think it's easy sometimes when um you know when a church like ours where we have so much kind of emphasis on a practical outworking of our faith and what it means to live out that news into the community and all those kind of things it's it's easy to to also have a bit of skepticism about some of those types mm. of stories isn't it but i guess i would say i totally believe in a god who speaks to me i just think that god probably speaks to me in a slightly different way to some mm. of those stories that mm. um that there are unknowns like like the story that you've just told there are other moments where i feel like god probably speaks to me with a a bit of a nudge as opposed to a huge mm. you know bright light and a huge mm. shouting on the damascus road type mm. moment but mm. i do think it's important to acknowledge that as well isn't it that we are that even when you're kind of being quite rational and scientific about the idea of miracles and things it's still okay to acknowledge that there is still mystery here mm. and that God still does speak to mm. us in whatever those ways yeah, might be. Yeah. If I look back over my life or the life of Oasis, of course, it's just riddled with miraculous happenings. Now, they might be miraculous just in their timing, but mm. at the very moment you needed somebody with that skill or you needed that opening, you just happened to bump into someone. Or they ring you. And it, and it's like, how did that happen? A miracle can be a miracle of timing, mm. can't it? And I'm very aware that the pathway of growth of Oasis across the years has been to do with endless things that have all come together in the moment. And I've often been left thinking, wow, how did all that happen right then? In that way, even the granted to us of the buildings that we now call Oasis Church Waterloo, uh, you know, uh, we've got to move on. But the truth of the matter is that it was a coming to it was how it came together was I, I was at a wedding, which I'd taken part in, and I sat, at, I was placed at a table, a reception table, next to somebody I didn't really know, and I got into a conversation, and they said, what about that church? Because I was looking to develop a church, and they said, what about that church um, in Waterloo, the one opposite um, Lambeth 
a North Tube. And I said, oh, well, I had to go away on a, I'd not thought about it, I had to go away and speak at an event for a week. Um, well, it was spring harvest, mm. you know? Yeah. And, and I, was, I was a leader in that. And um, so I had to be, I had to be at one Spring Harvest site, Butlin site, one week, and then I had to be at the other one because they used to be in Skegness and Minehead. Mm. And I was on the leadership team and the speaking team in Skegness, if it was Skegness, I can't remember which way round. But the next week, I was the person in charge of the whole site at the other place, you know, mm. like uh, I was, yeah, so I was the person who made, you know, in the end, all the decisions about the whole site. And then everybody got, uh, uh, loads of people in the site I was went down with the norovirus. <laughs> now, that's not a good thing, is it? No. You know? So where is the God of love where they've all paid to go to Butlins and they can't get the norovirus? <laughs> but the rest of the leadership team said to me, Steve, next week you've got to lead Spring Harvest in the other place. The norovirus um, it, you know, it takes 48 hours and there was some regulation about you had to have a 48-hour gap between, I mean, not a spring harvest regulation, but it was a regulation, a health regulation. So they said, you've got to go home two days early. So I came home two days early um, and on the first day home, I went and played golf with our two boys, Yeah, which was fantastic. Mm. Yeah, And on the second day, I wrote a letter to Christchurch and Upton Chapel's leadership. And and on the way to the other side, I came and I posted it through the letterbox and said, I'd love to talk to you about helping you. And that's why Oasis Church Waterloo exists. Mm. So mm. where's the miracle in that? Yeah. Huge. Where's the tragedy about the norovirus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Weird, isn't it? Yeah. If the norovirus hadn't spread through Butlins, I wouldn't be sitting here. And on here that, now. <laughs> theological note. <laughs>